Welcome to Power Surge. I'm Alex Epstein, joined by Stefan Hen in Germany. Stefan, how's it going? Hello, everyone. Great, thank you. All right, well, it's been a little while. It's been even longer. Well, it's been even longer than it seems, in part because there are three episodes of Power Surge that I have still yet to uh, post. It's been very busy here lately. We're having some transitions of, of personnel, so I've had to do it myself. And I've done a poor job with those last three, but hopefully by the time you hear this, uh, those will be up and, and you can listen to those. Also, last week we were finishing up Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which heavily involves both me and Stefan. And then Stefan took a little vacation and I recovered from writing the book, which is now in copy editing. So make sure to get it at Amazon.com, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, one, ten, hundred thousand copies, whatever you think uh, is good. Do that multiplied by 10. And that brings up the main story or issue I want to talk about today, which, which is almost the exact opposite of my book, and yet it's claiming to do what my book is trying to do. So this is uh, an article by the famous Paul Krugman of the New York Times, so the Nobel Prize winning economist, and it's called Interests, Ideology, and uh, Climate. And I'll just I'll read you the first paragraph and then talk a little bit about what the article is claiming to do. So it says, there are three things we know about man-made global warming. First, the consequences will be terrible if we don't take quick action to limit carbon emissions. Second, in pure economic terms, the required action shouldn't be hard to take. Emissions controls done right would probably slow economic growth, but not by much. Third, the politics of action are nonetheless very difficult. And so he sets it up as, okay, we know these, these two things. One is that we have this huge downside, this huge risk. Two is that the risk of doing something is not that large. And, and really he says, we know that, so it's a certainty, more or less, that it'll be terrible. So we've got this incredible danger, and then the cost of offsetting that danger is a hell of a lot less than the danger. He says that, okay, so we know that. And then third, Yet it's, it's very difficult to do something. And then the article is trying to explain why is it, given, given that this knowledge exists, how to do it. And he, you know, he, he tries to, um, he takes on the usual, oh, big oil conspiracy, but he's, you know, he's trying to be, I don't know if he's trying to be original, but he thinks he's being original. And his view then is, well, no, the actual answer is ideology. That the, that the culture, particularly the right, and particularly intellectuals on the right, that they have a certain kind of, of bias that's preventing them from taking an objective look at the facts and what's actually necessary. So he says, well, think about global warming from the point of view of someone who grew up taking Ayn Rand seriously. Notice that wording, grew up taking Ayn Rand seriously believing that the untrammeled pursuit of self-interest is always good and that government is always the problem, never the solution. Along comes some scientists declaring that unrestricted pursuit of self-interest will destroy the world and that government intervention is the only answer. It doesn't matter how market-friendly you make the proposed intervention, this is a direct challenge to the libertarian worldview. And the natural reaction is denial, angry denial. Read or watch any extended debate over climate policy and you'll be struck by the venom, the sheer rage, of the denialists. The fact that climate concerns rest on scientific consensus make things even worse because it plays into the anti-intellectualism that has always been a powerful force in American life, maybe on the right. 
it's not really surprising that so many right-wing politicians and pundits quickly turned to conspiracy theories, to accusations that thousands of researchers around the world were colluding in a gigantic hoax whose real purpose was to justify a big government power grab. After all, right-wingers never liked or trusted scientists in the first place. Um, this, is, this is definitely being written for a particular audience. It doesn't seem like he's trying to endear himself to those uh, right-wingers or people who quote-unquote, grew up taking Ayn Rand seriously. Um, I'm going to make a, a comment about this kind of article and the, the thinking, or the bad thinking that, that's involved. Um, just to step back, what is Krugman, or Krugman, I always pronounce his name a little bit wrong. What is he and why is he writing this and, and what is his positioning here? His positioning is as an expert. He's positioned as an expert in economics. And one of the, the things I stress in my book is the issue of how to view different statements by experts. Because on the one hand, you absolutely need people who are specialists in a field who've studied it in a depth that, that one hasn't uh, to get crucial information to make decisions. But in, on the other hand, there's an incredible danger of an expert completely overstepping his bounds. And, and it can happen in at least one of two directions. One is he can dramatically, within a field, an expert can dramatically overstate what he knows. So that would, for example, be somebody who makes a definitive prediction about the future of climate, knowing that climate is far too complex for that to be done using current knowledge, and that the attempts to do it have dramatically overpredicted um, any kind of average warming, which shows a, you know, a strong bias in the models, or at least a strong, uh, just incorrect tendency in the dominant theory of how climate works, or the dominant uh, expectation of how climate will work. So that's one thing. So you've got people overstepping how much they know in terms of within a field, but then there's people who are overstepping what they know outside a field. So it's some, it's, I've used the example of the American Physical Society taking public statements on political policy about fossil fuels. Now, you're leaving aside, there's a real question of how much they know about climate science or what, what their qualification is. They definitely have a qualification to say something about it, but how definitively they can talk about the future of climate is one thing. But they certainly don't know uh, other crucial things, such as what ultimately what is the full impact on human life, because the only way to know that is to know a lot about economics, but particularly the economics of energy and its relationship to the rest of the economy. You need to know the current state of different alternatives, what's going to happen if you restrict fossil fuels in the name of something else. And then you have to know about the whole science of, of adaptation. How do human beings, uh, what, how do we deal with changes in a climate? How does that compare with, say, how a beaver might deal with it or how a mosquito uh, might deal with it? And you, you can only have a picture of what makes sense to do about man-made climate change if you know the extent and nature of the climate change and you know uh, the risks of doing something about it, not doing something about it, how man adapts to it. It could turn out that you have a catastrophe or it could turn out that you can completely deal with it and it's a catastrophe to restrict one calorie uh, of coal power. So, you know, this, this, what, what is needed then is you need experts who are very clear with you, very precise about what they know and what they don't know. And, and they need to stick with their specialty unless, unless if they're going outside, they need to say that. And then within their specialty, they need to be extremely honest because you're relying on them to 
communicate things um, objectively. And to the extent they're not, and, and most of the time people who get in public are not doing this properly, uh, the person's status as an expert is, is being abused and it should really make you, it should absolutely make you question how they're proceeding. So if we go back to uh, Krugman, you know, he's, he's clever. Uh, I mean, he's clever in terms of a bright guy, but, but he's clever in terms of what he's, he's trying to act like he's doing is he's giving you an expert view and he's also giving you a, a big picture view. He's, he's looking at all the different fields and he's bringing them together and then he himself is an economist, so he allegedly knows what will benefit economic growth and what won't. And that's, he's trying to position himself. And yet, if you look at every sentence of this article, there uh, is just sort of shockingly little truth to it. And he is really asserting things on his authority that are either obvious misrepresentations or representations if you look at them in any kind of depth. So let's, let's go to the first one. First, we know about, and words mean things. And, and you know, Dr. Krugman should be taken to task for this. We know. So no means this, this corresponds to reality definitely. It's, it's pretty close to we can see it. It's in front of us. So first, the consequences will be terrible if we don't take quick action to limit carbon emissions. Um, okay, what is the evidence for that? Um, I think there's no evidence for that. And in the terms of things that have, I mean, there are, there are predictions that have a whole set of assumptions that have been completely contradicted by recent history. And, and every prediction like this has been wrong. So we know, for example, that, that since the seven, in the 70s and 80s, this exact prediction was made repeatedly with a lot of seeming scientific confidence. It completely came false. Every aspect of life got much, much better, including we're much, much safer from climate because energy, having more energy from fossil fuels has given us more ability to use machines to do things like heat and cool our homes and build sturdy homes and have weather satellites that we can respond to. So it, it's turned out so far that the energy we get from fossil fuels is far more valuable in protecting us for, from climate than any kind of uh, you know, than any discernible uh, negative net impact on climate. So it, it, this is just a complete uh, lie. I mean, it's either, it's either that he's taking some expert on faith who's lying about his state of knowledge, or Krugman is just, just lying. And I don't usually like talking about people in terms of, of lying, because it's, it's, it's too much about, oh, well, this person's motive is, he, he's deliberately doing a bad thing. I, I don't quite know what's going on in his head, but the smarter someone is, the less sympathy I have for them. And this is just not, it's not a fair thing to do, to make this kind of statement. He's obviously playing on his authority. And the way this functions, if you talk to people who are big fans of his, is they just say, well, look, how are you to argue with a Nobel Prize winning economist? You know, and, and that is then, uh, even in his own field, there's a lot to question it, within his own subspecialty of international economics. But this is a complete abuse of perceived expertise and it's it's incredibly incredibly dangerous and throughout history so much of what governments do is endorsed by experts of the time who are completely overstepping their knowledge and thus thus abusing their expertise there they become an expert in reverse because they become a false uh, authority so that's the the then so you have the consequences will be terrible so because point one of the big picture is completely false and then point two 
Second, in pure economic terms, the required action shouldn't be hard to take. Emissions controls done right would probably slow economic growth, but not by much. So this is one where you think, oh, well, he's an economist. So, no. you ha part of being an expert is, and part of our check on someone, and part of our ability to apply what they say, is that they actually give a clear explanation. This is not an explanation at all. This is just a statement. And it is the opposite of a precise explanation because every little aspect of it is deliberately vague. So let's take the issue of emissions controls done right would probably slow economic growth, but not by much. There's a hell of a quantitative statement. Uh, but particularly the, the least quantitative part is, is, is I think, the least obviously non-quantitative, which is this issue of emissions controls done right. Um, because his first statement is we need to take quick action to limit. And Okay, what does quick action mean? How much? What's the limit? Well, if we take the authority that he would talk about a scientific consensus that the rest of us hate because we never really like scientists in the first place. Well, I don't like that, that quote-unquote scientific body of the IPCC since it's a political body that, whose mission is to find the negative consequences of, of fossil fuels rather than to objectively look at the... Uh, what what the science shows about the nature of climate. It also takes a monopoly position, which I think is extremely dangerous, uh, particularly in a realm like science. Um, but in any case, what is what is emissions controls? Emissions controls by the IPCC statement means 80% reduction by 2050. So that means that means uh, that means that you are not allowed to use whatever you know that the United States as a whole, for example, is only allowed to use in 30 you know. 35, 36 years, then no matter what, we're only allowed to use one-fifth of the energy from fossil fuels that we do now. We'll probably have more of a population. So that is, you know, that is, if, if that energy would not, were not completely or overwhelmingly replaced by something else that could be affordable, can be produced in that amount of quantity, that means that what happens is our world runs on machines, machines run on energy. If you start taking away the energy from those machines, those machines starve. And so the real question would be, well, if you're talking, if this is what's quote unquote necessary, what, how in the world can you just get away with saying, oh, shouldn't be hard to take? By, by what evidence? We, we have also the example of the last 30, 40 years where we were also told that, oh, well, there will be all these alternatives and particularly renewables. And I, I posted something on the newsletter the other day showing that the, uh, which you can check out at industrialprogress.com, just sign up. But the, also on, on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash al.x.epstein. I think it's on twitter.com slash alexepstein too. Anyway, uh, that you have a dramatic, dramatic increase in fossil fuel use overall because people in the world uh, can you have so many positive ways of using more energy and more and more people are energy poor. So he is taking this whole situation, which is essentially people in the world desperately need more energy. They can always make use of more energy to improve their lives. He's endorsing something that says slash our best source of energy by 80%. So outlaw 80% of that usage. And then those proposals usually mean replace them with quote renewables, solar, wind, and biofuels, which are the three worst energy technologies of the last 30, 40 years, well, 100 years, really, in terms of performance. And so he, that is, on its face, potentially an act of economic suicide. And I would say almost a very high confidence that it's an act of economic suicide. Certainly much higher confidence than this, than this prediction of 
we know that it'll be terrible, uh, you know, based on climate prediction models that can't predict climate. So in any case, he's all, if he's, if he's saying, it would be like, this is even, a, it's even more extreme than this, but if someone said, well, in, in, in 40 years, you can only farm quote unquote organically, no pesticides, no fertilizers, no genetic engineering or no synthesis. You would have to say that is terribly scary because from everything we know, that other kind of farming leads to the kinds of prices you pay at Whole Foods and people would starve in billions. And so you couldn't say, oh, well, in pure economic terms, the required action shouldn't be hard to take. Uh, farming controls done right would probably slow economic growth. But not that is an insane statement. So if you're making that statement, you would better have a hell of a theory. And really what you should do, which Krugman and his ilk will never do, is actually try to prove something in the free market, which is completely against their philosophy, uh, which then will take us to ideology. So once you have these two premises, uh, on the it's almost a Pascal's wager type situation. On the one hand, it's going to be a complete disaster, no basis. And then two, what this complete disaster I'm proposing or endorsing will not be an, a disaster at all, no basis. Then why is it that those idiots can't see it? And his explanation is instructive because it's actually the explanation that he gives for the, for the wrong, for what he views as the other side not seeing the big picture is actually very applicable to the explanation of how he doesn't, of why he won't see the big picture, which is ideology. So notice that he, he describes people, and again, this is just such an abuse of expertise to talk about someone who grew up taking Ayn Rand seriously. So it's, it's as if those of us who are admirers of Ayn Rand and learn from Ayn Rand, it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I grew up with a dog. I grew up with a cat. I grew up with an abusive stepfather. I definitely did not have any stepfather, but, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I grew up taking Ayn Rand seriously. So he is already, again, using his quote-unquote expertise to marginalize a thinker on the other side, whom if you read and you read her stuff on economics and her stuff on these issues, you'd at least have to agree this is a formidable thinker. But he's, he's using his expertise to get you to dismiss Ayn Rand. And then his view, his description of her is just completely wrong. Untrammeled pursuit of self-interest. What the hell does untrammeled mean? Well, it really means nothing is getting in the way. Well, she has a whole ethical code that is very much delimiting what self-interest is. And it has this whole key idea of not sacrificing others to you, not sacrificing yourself to others. And it consistent with that is a, is a reverence for individual rights and, and a very big commitment to preventing rights violations and taking very seriously any time that the actions of one person or one group are hurting another. And that's why when she talks about pollution, which you know Krugman could actually get off his butt and read, but does not. Or he has, which is even worse. But she she talks seriously about you have to deal with these problems. You have to have proper laws against pollution. Uh, and she stresses that the solution is always science and technology, and that you cannot you can never pass something that makes it impossible for people to live because the purpose of rights is to enable people uh, to live and to flourish. So you know you can't say, as I, I like to use this example, you can't say to the person who discovers fire, oh, you're not allowed to use fire because it has smoke. No, 
you have a right to take action to benefit your life. And you have to look at any downside of that in the full context of, of what's necessary for human life. And right now, fossil fuels are fundamentally necessary to human life. And thus, you want to minimize negatives, but it can't be on the table that, oh, we're not going to use this. The only way that would be on the table is if you develop something vastly superior that could scale to billions and billions of people and be you know, cheap and reliable as well. Then you can talk about, oh, are there downsides that really make it so that we're, you know, we're better off not having it. But it's infinitely far away from the world uh, we live in. But notice, notice how unhesitant he is to uh, completely misrepresent the other side. And then even just the way he describes the debate is bizarre. Their natural reaction is denial, angry denial, venom, sheer rage. Have you ever seen Bill McKibben? Have you ever seen Paul Krugman? I mean, what is the, the quote-unquote denialists, especially given the way they get treated, uh, are not that way at all. You've, I've had a lot of them on Power Hour. It's complete, just a lie in terms of how it's characterized. If you look at people on TV, I mean, you get a lot of bad on both sides. But to say there's not a lot of venom from the left is, is to have lived there too long because it is, it is just massive. And just the, the hatred and the explaining everything by the fact that someone else is ill-motivated or funded by the Koch brothers or just an idiot, you know, those, those are the three big explanations you get. Uh, it's just, this is all just completely false. And it's, it's important that it's false and that he is, he is putting himself as an, as an authority. So this whole mode of thinking is, this whole mode of presentation is just completely, Every sentence is a misrepresentation of reality, whether it's misrepresenting the state of scientific knowledge, of economic knowledge, of just the nature uh, of people. And it's part of why he's such a, I think, uh, and I find him a very unpleasant writer because he's not writing to persuade people who doesn't, don't agree with him. He's writing to really rally his side and make them feel Superior, and you know, you get this criticism. I think legitimately often of Rush Limbaugh, where he, he, I find him more charming than I find Paul Krugman. But where his show is making his listeners feel superior to the liberals versus truly explaining things. Now, I think Rush Limbaugh explains things better than Paul Krugman, and I mean that seriously. I haven't listened to him Rush in a while, but nothing could be worse than this. Uh, and it's it's just. Yeah, it's it's really it's really a mess. But let's just talk quickly about then then ideology. So the question is then: This is a very very smart guy, uh, you know, by by all accounts. I mean, he can string words together. He can put together different things. I mean, it's it's hard. You know, smart in a certain sense breaks down when you're completely wrong uh, about things. But you know, in his his field. Um, Again, I don't even think he's right there in many ways, but okay, he's got a certain IQ that is well above probably 130, whatever the hell that's worth. But the question is, why is he just completely butchering everything? Why? I mean, he gets everything wrong, and he's he's so intelligent, and he's exposed to so many things. And I think he answers his own the the question of how he can be so wrong with this issue of ideology. So, um, you know, imagine you're somebody who grew up, I'm not going to say taking X seriously, but imagine you're somebody who grew up uh, believing that 
that it's wrong to leave individuals free, that individuals free are a force for bad. And I, I forget Krugman's exact biography, but he talks about you know, being very interested in, in you know, figuring out a way to control everything. He has a very strong statist uh, disposition. And maybe you, know, you grow up and it really bothers you that some people think that their lives belong to them. And so you devote your whole, and so you have an inclination, everything you see to show people, no, you know, your life does not belong to you. You cannot live freely because that is, that's illogical. You're harming others. You're harming the poor. So you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to just have private relationships with doctors and choose your medical care. That's ridiculous because we're all in this together and we're all a society and, and everyone depends on everything else and we're all hopelessly interconnected etc, etc, etc. He has a clear moral disposition, and he is open sometimes about his moral disposition towards collectivism, which is the belief that the group is superior to the individual. And one of the, one of the uh, things that the collectivist is constantly using as a justification is the idea that the individual is fundamentally, the, the, the individual cannot exist independently. That is, he is always dependent on the collective, and he is always he is always and unfairly assaulting the collective. So anytime they get a problem where it seems like oh, individuals taking actions is having some sort of negative aggregate impact, their solution is not okay. Let's is this true? Let's really investigate it. How do we resolve this in a way that's consistent with individual rights? Their thing is see, you 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 grew up with Ayn Rand. You thought the government was necessary. Well, now no. You need to let the government do whatever it wants. It needs to control the whole economy. It needs to tell you what scientists have concluded. You don't need to think about it. Just listen to the consensus and give us the reins, and then we will uh, we'll tell you what to do. So for him, the idea that fossil fuels could us, you know, me driving my car could overall be a really, really good thing, and I don't need him, and I don't need a government. Uh, and in fact, it's it's overall much better, and that more people should doing that. That that is not what Krugman wants to hear. Krugman is not looking for spheres of life in which liberty is a wonderful thing. He's looking for spheres of life in which his his quote unquote guidance is necessary, and in in which it's immoral or impossible for individuals uh, to be free. So. It, it is an interesting thing. And then there's a whole issue of the, the bias of, of environmentalism where people, when they look at something like fossil fuels, and this is what I talk about in the book, where they can only, they anticipate that, oh, fossil fuels can only have negative environmental consequences versus positive because they, their environmental ideal is, well, we shouldn't be impacting the world around us. Impact is bad. So they, they only look for negative impacts, so they end up exaggerating those, and then they ignore the positive impacts. So we're all afraid of climate, even though, as Stefan once pointed out to me, you know, in America we live in every conceivable climate that one can live in or that one could live in, and we thrive in it because we have so much technology, uh, which is, is powered by cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, and yet we're terrified of climate, and we keep forecasting doom. And that's because we have not been taught to think objectively about these things without that kind of prejudice. And, with, and instead, if we think, okay, what... Our goal is to benefit human life. That's that's the goal, and we that part of that is we really care about individuals. Um, what let's 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 try to get the big picture, and as part of that, let's ask specialists in every field what they know 
um, and what they don't know and how they know it. And if we do that, then we can get a really good sense of the big picture. And if we don't, then what we're going to get is this kind of thing, which is uh, you know, a pretentious authority who uses his expertise in one sliver of life to dictate what everyone else should do and, and to mislead the public. And so this is, a, I'd say, a profoundly immoral article. And I think Krugman is, is just a disservice to humanity in terms of this kind of, of methodology, which is, is present in a lot of his stuff. So I'd invite you to look at, at what he writes and think about it in the context of, is this how a proper expert should act? Is he really looking at the big picture? Is he really coming up with a conclusion that is pro-human life? And I think you'll find that he doesn't. And that, that um, I think that if, you know, people listening to this, hopefully we have some, some fans and followers of him. And I have, you know, my grandfather is beloved to me, was a huge fan of, of Krugman's. Uh, you know, he, he appeals to a lot of really bright people because he is bright and because he, he claims to stand for science and reason, but he, he really doesn't. And it's, I think it, it's important, the, the worst kind of person is the person who claims to stand for science and reason and who really stands for, uh, for dogma and authoritarianism. And then in the realm of politics, the power uh, of the state. So hopefully that helps with both this um, and others, because on this issue, you're going to find so much of this. And, and what ends up happening is that you get all these quote unquote smart people saying these things and they, they are just not at all true. And it's because they are their method. They're using a wrong methodology to um, to completely misportray the big picture uh, state of evidence. So that was definitely the longest power surge rant ever. Uh, Stefan, do you have anything you want to add? <laughs> well, not much. I also recommend everyone to read the entire piece. And uh, yeah, it's very interesting how Krugman has become famous to make this kind of argument to assert certain things and it's almost like a you know political pamphlet where you just state the party line and you don't give the reader any chance to think in a different way you know he says quick action to limit carbon emissions is necessary there's no other option ever discussed and um yeah it's interesting to study that kind of argument i would say um, so I recommend everyone read the entire piece. There are other um, small side arguments that do not increase my confidence in Paul Krugman's ability to, you know, cover the whole issue. But what such as? Um, yeah, for example, he sometimes makes these economic arguments like the coal industry, for example, is small anyways, so it wouldn't make much of a difference if we shut it down. So. Um, and he had this kind of argument in the past where he thinks like only uh, um, those industries are important where there's a lot of manual labor involved or things would stimulate the economy if you would just, you know, um, replace efficient machine work with a lot of manual labor and so on. And this is, this is a kind of theme that always repeats in his columns. You know, the coal thing is, is so bad in so many ways, uh, in particular because this is, again, this goes back to not at all being precise about what the hell you're talking about. Because yeah. uh, quick action to limit carbon emissions. Okay, coal is 
fastest growing source of energy in the world. It's the energy of development. When you're talking about limiting emissions, are you talking about the U.S.? Are you talking about some, you know, substituting U.S. coal with natural gas? Where economically, in some ways, that is doable, at least for the foreseeable future. But what is that? The globally, that has is completely the opposite uh, of doable. So it's it's just it's a deliberate misrepresentation to act as if, well, what the U.S. does with coal and gas, anyone can do with coal and gas. And he doesn't even engage that issue because he's, he's not actually trying to, uh, to clarify them. That's, that's what's so disheartening about it, but, but I think should just lead you to just being aware, I think, of this, this, this kind of behavior by experts and, and to not be intimidated by them, but just always ask, can you please give me an explanation of what you don't know, what you know, what you don't know, how you know it, and and really ask for the big picture, ask for precision, and you'll see that that you know just as there are uh, there are bad people in every realm of life, there's certainly uh, bad people and very bad conduct in in this kind of realm. To say the least, that's true. Uh, it might astonish you how much, but they're, they're, what their goal is is to intimidate you because you're not a you know you're not a quote unquote expert, but really you're no one is an expert at every element of everything we need to make decisions. So we all need to be we all need to learn how to gain knowledge from other experts, and every expert needs to know how to conduct himself properly in terms of in terms of him being clear on what he knows and what he doesn't know and how and then him being clear to others. And so this, this definitely gets a grade F in that, but hopefully seeing what an F looks like will help you find other uh, better sources, and that's part of what we try to do on Power Hour. All right, longest power surge ever, but hopefully it was worth it. Stefan, thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you for inviting me.